This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As this school year nears an end, parents wonder about the start of the next academic year. Will schools welcome kids back? What will the classroom look like? Or will there still be online learning? The answers depend in part on what the virus does to kids and how kids transmit the virus. The World Health Organization said over the weekend that children appear to be less capable of spreading coronavirus than adults. The comment came from the WHO's chief scientist, Sumya Swaminathan, who appeared on the BBC. What we have seen in countries where schools have remained open is that there have not been big outbreaks in schools. And where there have been, it's been associated with with events, you know, where a lot of people gather, not in regular classrooms. And it's often been associated with an adult who's had the infection and who's spread it. So it does seem, from what we know now, that children are less capable of spreading it even if they get the infection, and certainly are at very low risk of getting ill from the disease. For more on what all of this may mean, we're joined by Dr. Edith Bracho-Sanchez, a pediatrician and a professor of pediatrics at Columbia University. What do you make of her comments here? So I think some of the um, reports that we're seeing and the comments that we're seeing from the WHO are definitely reassuring. I just want more data. So a number of things have gone into into these comments from what I understand. Um, there are countries that have opened schools, Germany, Denmark, um, some parts of Canada, and those countries are not seeing big outbreaks of COVID-19 in children linked to schools, which is reassuring, but we just need more data. These countries have also done a variety of things to keep kids safe in school. Germany, for example, we've read reports that they are having children self-test every four days and giving a green sticker to kids that test negative and allowing them to walk around the school without a mask on. Um, Some schools are taking temperature. Some schools have introduced a variety of social distancing and hygiene techniques. So so when we look at this, at these reports, and we, we look at the lack of outbreaks linked to children after they were allowed to go back to school, it is reassuring. But we have to remember that there are measures that these countries have taken and that we don't have all of the information yet. Really, the bottom line is, can my kids hug their grandparents? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. For a long time, and a long time in the COVID world, in a few months, um, for a long time, we've been thinking about children in terms of the risk that they pose to adults. We've been saying, okay, well, if my kid goes back to school, can they then come home and bring me the coronavirus or bring the coronavirus to to grandma and grandpa if they visit? And now, not only is it that, that is very much still a consideration, but now we're starting to learn, for example, that there is a new, rare, but serious complication of COVID-19 that seems to affect children very differently than it affects adults. And, And now I think that the conversation's starting to switch to what is the risk to children themselves? from bo- from going back to school. What's the answer? I wish I had it, but I just don't know. We just don't know. There are reports, for example, right? There, There is a report of a child, I believe from England, who was in the French Alps and then went home and was in contact with 72 people. The child himself tested positive for coronavirus. None of the 72 people he came into contact with tested positive. So that was reassuring. But then we had another report of a six-month-old whose parents had COVID-19 and the child had to be cared for in the 
hospital. And so they were constantly testing this little baby, six months old, and he shed the virus at very high levels for 16 days. And so the, the data so far has been mixed. And I think that's why it's so important that we collect more data in children. And the NIH, as you probably have heard, launched a study at the beginning of May to follow 2,000 families to try to answer this question. What exactly is the rate of transmission? What exactly is the risk to children? Because we just haven't been collecting the data yet. Pediatric multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome. What do we make of that? Does it matter whether it's specifically connected to COVID as the CDC now seems to suggest that it is? I do believe that it is linked to COVID-19. And I'll tell you why. So this new syndrome seems to have some characteristics of Kawasaki disease, but it also has some characteristics that overlap toxic shock syndrome. And I'll explain very, very briefly. Kawasaki disease is an inflammatory condition. It is caused by inflammation. And then the, the blood vessels in the body are affected and ultimately different organs can be affected. The one that we worry about is the heart. Children present with fever, with um, the red eyes, the rash, um, the swollen hands and feet, the swollen lymph nodes, some of the same symptoms that we are now seeing in this new condition. But the difference, one of the many differences that we're still learning is that these these children who are presenting with the new syndrome also seem to have some of those symptoms from toxic shock. They are very sick when they present to care. They sometimes have low blood pressures and signs that there are multiple, there's multiple organ systems that are affected. And that doesn't go with Kawasaki disease. It also wasn't here before COVID. So we can sort of speculate, um, you know, why are they testing, some are testing negative for the antibodies and the virus itself. And that is is absolutely puzzling. But I think at the end of the day, you just sort of have to take a step back and think, okay, well, even if it's not linked or if we can't prove it yet for some of these kids, remember the majority are testing positive, then where was this before COVID? Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez, something else to consider as states consider the best way to bring children back into school. Automakers brought thousands of workers back to the assembly plants today. Detroit's Big Three restarted production at dozens of plants with new precautions. ABC's Ryan Burrow is with us. How's this going? Yeah, let's uh, start out with uh, Ford, for example. Uh, They've got uh, about 60,000 workers heading back to the lines this week uh, at the U.S. plants. Um, They're staggering shifts, so not everyone's coming in at the same time like they would pre-pandemic. There are temperature checks upon entry. They're being given gloves and goggles. They're all working behind glass or around glass barriers and separators. Um, And what's interesting, too, about what Ford and Fiat Chrysler are doing is they've actually teamed up with local hospitals and medical clinics uh, as a direct connection with workers who may be seeing symptoms or suffering from symptoms so they can shoot them directly to those offices and uh, get checked out immediately. And what Ford's doing also, and this is something we've seen in some other industries where you know, you're nervous about outbreaks or you're nervous uh, that maybe people won't be showing up to work, they've actually got thousands of temporary workers on standby just in case they see high absenteeism for whatever reason, whether it be an outbreak or maybe people nervous to come in. So they're prepared to keep the line moving, even if maybe things turn sour once the work gets going again. The auto workers have been sheltering at home for nearly two months now. 
Is the UAW okay with all these plants restarting? It seems like it. At first, uh, maybe three, four weeks ago, they seemed hesitant. They really wanted some guarantees that the employees were going to remain safe on the job. And they seem to be pretty satisfied because uh, they're ready to get back to work. There seem to be enough uh, supplies of PPE available. They seem to be staggering these shifts. They also feel as though uh, workers who may be coming down with something feel as though they can take time off and not suffer the consequences which is a a big issue that we've seen in some of these other industries like the meatpacking industry where people don't want to come in because they're sick, but they feel like they have no choice because they may be their family's only source of income. So uh, they seem to have uh, created pathways for people to, uh, if they don't feel comfortable or if they feel sick, not to come in and still have their jobs. I wonder really if there's all that much urgency here. Certainly some of the employees may want to get back to work for the paycheck, but are auto sales there? Is anyone buying a new car these days? You know, it's interesting because we're hearing two different things. Number one, obviously, car dealerships haven't been open. Um, It's really hard to determine how many people wanted to buy cars during this time. Um, But we are hearing that pickup truck sales are up. Maybe these are fleet sales, maybe not individual sales, but purchases that would have been made over the last two and a half months that weren't made. Um, It sounds as though they've really got to ramp up uh, some production to to meet those goals and to, to hit those sales. So, yeah, it does sound like there is a little bit of a groundswell. I I just don't quite know what it is for, if it's for fleet vehicles or if it's for individual vehicles. ABC's Ryan Burrow with us from Chicago. Like many of us, it seems New York Governor Andrew Cuomo hankers for some sports to watch. Hockey, basketball, baseball, football, whoever can reopen. We're a ready, willing, and able partner. The governor encouraged professional sports to start playing again in empty arenas. The games could be televised. New York State will help those major sports franchises to do just that. Major League Sports have been dormant since March. Baseball is in talks with players on a plan to start the season. The NFL released its schedule earlier this month. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. With me now is our Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we know the CDC has just issued a health alert about the COVID-associated syndrome affecting right. children. So tell us what we know about that at this point. Well, this is significant because the CDC issues these urgent health warnings when they really want to get all hands on deck, increase awareness. What it does is it triggers clinicians, healthcare providers, and laboratories to be on the lookout for this syndrome. And here's what we know right now about this syndrome in children. It is now called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. It requires a COVID-19 diagnosis within the last month. That's either by swab or by antibodies. And it requires a case severe enough that the child will need to be hospitalized also with signs or symptoms like fever, rash, which can be just raised bumps if it's on a darker skin child or a pinkish rash on lighter skin children, and then multiple organ systems involved. This is the syndrome that they're alerting people to be on the lookout for. And we've been talking about this now for some time, but what are the theories out there as to what's causing it? Well, we've seen this type of reaction in children following other types of infections. That's why it's been sharing some features with Kawasaki syndrome or toxic shock syndrome. But right now, the thinking is that it could just be due to an overactive or extra vigorous immune system that we know children have. But again, right now, a lot of theories and more questions rather than answers. Speaking to that, what do we still need to figure out? Well, at the 
simplest level, Amy, we need to figure out why this is happening. We also don't know at this point why some children are being affected and not others. And in terms of prevention and treatment, we don't know if something like convalescent plasma would be safe and effective in the pediatric population. And again, we really need to figure out why it's happening so we can prevent it and then tailor the treatment directly to the cause. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Well, beginning today, the state of Florida is entering what it calls a full phase one of its coronavirus recovery plan. And that means that restaurants, retail stores and gyms can now operate with 50 percent capacity. Here to give us the latest on how things are going in his city is Tallahassee, Florida Mayor John Daly. Mayor Daly, thanks for being with us. And you agreed with Florida Governor DeSantis's order to reopen those restaurants and retail stores. That happened on May 4th. But beginning today, as we just said, they can now increase their capacity. Gyms can reopen. How has the process of reopening gone so far, in your opinion? Well, we have been very proactive in Tallahassee, and I'm very proud of our citizens. And we've taken a lot of measures up front to protect the health, safety, and welfare of our community. We put our stay-at-home order in place eight days before the governor's stay-at-home order. And our citizens have really embraced the CDC guidelines. Uh, We wear our masks. We hand them out for free. And so the, the reopening has gone very well. Before we make a decision here locally, we always check in with the local medical community. We run by them what we want to do make sure that we've got the green light, because first and foremost, the health, safety and welfare of our community is our number one priority. So many individuals and small businesses are hurting financially there. What measures has Tallahassee taken to help them? Well, we realized up front that we were going to need to help our small businesses and our nonprofits and every individual in the city of Tallahassee. So we proactively put some programs in place to help. For instance, we created a small business loan program that took a million dollars and put it straight into our local economy, supporting our local businesses. We then did the exact same thing and recreated the program, putting a million dollars into our local economy to support nonprofits. City of Tallahassee also owns the electric utility. And during the month of May, every single resident is going to see a rebate. Mm -hmm. Overall, in the past month, we've pumped about nine million dollars into our local economy to support local small businesses the nonprofits and individuals. And we're really proud of the actions that we've taken. And we know that last week we heard that your county's Department of Health revealed while African-Americans make up 32 percent of Leon County's population, they accounted for 47 percent of those diagnosed with COVID-19. We're seeing this around the nation as well. Are you seeing similar numbers in Tallahassee? And what are you doing to address the situation? We are. Unfortunately, 51 percent of our confirmed cases have impacted negatively our African-American community. And that is something we all need to pay attention to. And obviously, in discussions with the public health department, you know, a lot of these uh, impacts are due to longstanding disparities, both economic and health that not only Tallahassee, but I think all communities across the United States are seeing. This needs to be addressed. But here in Tallahassee, we've taken proactive steps. Florida A&M University has set up a walk-up clinic, which has been tremendously successful. It's allowing us to gather data. It's allowing us to really decipher exactly how it's impacting all of uh, our citizens of Tallahassee. But this is an issue that we have to pay attention to, and we need to do the best job we can to protect our citizens. We are certainly wishing you the best in all of your efforts. Tallahassee Mayor John Daly, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. 
educators across the country are scrambling for creative ways to keep students engaged in remote learning. And that is just the beginning of the major challenges ahead once the new school year begins this fall. But there are plans being laid to help with this new transition to learning. And joining me now to tell us all about it is Kathy Mears, interim president and CEO of the National Catholic Educational Association. Thank you for being with us. We certainly appreciate it, Kathy. And I know this is so new still for both students and teachers. Tell us what Catholic educators are doing right now to help students get through this distance learning. Well, I think all of our teachers and principals are acting as first-year teachers and principals. No one's been through this before, and they're doing it with a lot of grace. They are doing are engaged in a lot of professional development so they can learn the techniques that they need to engage students in a remote learning environment. But most of all, they're treating their students like they always have with a lot of love and respect. Um, Catholic schools believe that communication is an intimate communication between souls. And in order to have that intimate communication, you have to have a relationship. So mostly we um, remind ourselves every day that we are to love the children first and then to teach them. And when we do that, we know that we're more successful. What are teachers planning on doing if schools do remain closed this fall? Well, we're all hopeful that won't happen, but if it does happen, we'll be prepared. Like I said, our teachers are engaging in professional development over the summer, and they're trying to build relationships with students over the summer in different ways. Many of our Catholic schools are small, and they know that when they get to fourth grade, they're going to have Mrs. Lewis, and the students in third grade already know Mrs. Lewis a bit. So that helps us a lot because we don't have a lot of transitions in our schools because many of them are K through eight. And that helps with building that relationship. Distance learning goes a lot further when we're in relationship before we jump into it. But if we have to jump into it um, at the beginning of the school year, we will do that with a lot of hope and joy. And we will keep focus on students and their families. Um, the church also believes that student um, parents are the first and primary educators of their their children. So we will work with parents and grow those partnerships to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our students the best way that we can. Nationwide, I know you know this, more than 1,200 Catholic schools have closed in this past decade, and typically that happened as a result of financial stress. So that said, what impact is COVID-19 having on parishes and their schools financially? Um, it, it, we're taking a big hit right now. Um, we wish it weren't so, but parents um, are struggling to pay tuition. Most of our parents aren't saying we're not going to pay it, but they're asking for more time to pay it. And we, we are working with families all over the country. We have some great corporate partners like Fax and um, others who are helping us with that, too, so that we can support parents as they figure out how to feed their children first. And Catholic schools are helping out with that, too. We are providing meals and Catholic charities are providing meals and food to families. So we're all working together to make that happen. But there's no doubt the financial impact could have grave consequences for Catholic schools. We are hopeful that Catholic schools will survive this pandemic um, and still be there to teach our students because we know that Catholic education is a true gift to the nation. Um, We know that our graduates are more likely to vote. They're more likely to volunteer. And we are grateful every day for um, the graduates of Catholic schools who are leading during this pandemic. Um, Our Dr. Fauci um, is a Catholic school graduate. I think he was educated from first grade through 16, at least, in Catholic schools. And so we're grateful for people like him who understand that um, it's really important to be well-educated and it's really important to know that um, faith is our foundation and that to be a good leader, we need to be ethical and moral. That's wonderful. Kathy Mears, we certainly appreciate it. We wish you the very best. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Amy.
Up next right here, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton with answers to the questions you're asking. And then within this current bleak economic picture, there are some bright spots if you're looking for work. And welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here in the house. And Dr. Jen, there was a very big vaccine headline that came out today. Yeah, and some positive news. We all need positive news in this story. Um, Moderna, which is one of the drug makers in conjunction with the NIH, announced positive data from their safety and efficacy phase one and phase two trials. Um, Those are smaller numbers, but again, they're working at land speed records to test this this vaccine, make sure that it is safe, not just short term, but long term, and that it's effective. So in just eight volunteers, they did demonstrate that they started to produce antibodies that were equivalent to that or greater than that uh, seen in convalescent plasma. So that's good news. But we are still a long ways away. Yeah. So very positive news initially. But if Mm -hmm. you start thinking about the larger picture of it, so that's great. Even if it's safe and it's effective, the problem is how many people and how quickly can you get people this vaccine? Exactly. And that's something that really we haven't even started to talk about yet. But we have to remember when you heard Dr. Anthony Fauci say 12 to 18 month timeline, if everything goes perfectly, there are certain parts of that timeline that cannot be accelerated. You can't cut corners on safety. And it does take time to assess for that, not only short-term and long-term, when you get into the manufacturing and distribution question, Amy, remember that whichever country or countries finds a vaccine that is safe and effective, it then potentially needs to make doses for a large part of the entire world. So that will take time. And then you get into questions like, how will that be distributed? Who will get it first? The, vac- the vials, the injections, the needles. I mean, there are a lot of supply chain logistical issues that still need to be figured out, and they're complicated. Next question. Do we know more about why some people who had COVID-19 continue to suffer from symptoms months after their initial diagnosis? I'm glad we got this question because so much of the focus have been on the people who are sick and very little on the recovery process. We don't know yet why this virus produces symptoms in some that linger for weeks or even months. And a lot of these people feel um, really ignored because they're better with the acute phase of this illness, but really still suffering. They're getting bizarre muscle aches and pains. They have extreme fatigue, in some cases, even cognitive or psychological manifestations that really do linger. So right now, we don't understand why this virus does that. But my advice, my prescription medically, give yourself time. This is uncharted territory and we have to be patient with ourselves. Yeah, and we're all being patient, waiting for a vaccine, waiting for some sort of medicine. In the meantime, this next question asks, are there any dietary suggestions medical professionals have to help fight against the virus? Well, I'm particularly interested in this, Amy, because as you know, I also have a degree in nutrition, and I feel that in general, we neglect the field of nutritional science a lot in medicine. Uh, Short answer to this question, no, no dietary suggestions, but there is research ongoing and some NIH-funded trials looking particularly at the role of vitamin D in its association with lowering the associated risk of not just this coronavirus and COVID-19, but other well-known respiratory infections. So again, it's not ready for prime time yet, but there is some data that suggests that people with higher levels of vitamin D in their blood are less likely to become infected or seriously ill. And of note, we've seen the association between particularly high rates, as you know, in nursing home population and in African-American and Hispanic people 
all of whom are known to be at greater risk for a low vitamin D level. So right now it's association, not cause and effect, mm-hmm. but something I'm keeping an eye but on. But it is fascinating. Yeah. All right, next question. Has there been any connection to the vaping lung illness outbreak from 2019, 2020, and COVID-19? And short answer, no, because they haven't yet tracked the data of people who are confirmed to be sick with COVID-19 or, unfortunately, who have died of COVID-19 disease and whether they have a history of smoking or vaping. But it is theorized by pulmonologists that anything that has a potential for dramatically weakening pulmonary function, respiratory function, obviously, when added together, uh, can be potentially not good. But no official association or published data yet. All right. Dr. Jen, as always, thank you so much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, nearly three million more people have filed for unemployment in the United States, bringing the total number to 36 million unemployed Americans. So now more than ever, people need help navigating the job market. And here to do that and walk us through it is Karen Fitchuk, the CEO of Rancid North America, the parent company of job hunting portal Monster.com. Karen, thanks for being with us. And we know that this is scary. It's frustrating for so many people, for millions of people. So can we begin with some advice or some hope that you can offer people who are looking for work right now? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Amy. Um, I think the most important thing that job seekers need to know right now, and uh, despite the challenging economy, there are jobs available out there. Um, At Monster and Ronstadt, our role is to match employers uh, with with job seekers. And with the reopening, we're definitely seeing an increase in demand. Essential businesses like grocery and food are hiring across manufacturing, distribution centers, warehousing, as well as retail and delivery. What about those who Um, need to pivot from their old job, Karen, to a new one or even a new industry altogether? Any suggestions? Yeah, absolutely. My advice would be to get creative and really just focus on your skills versus some of the jobs that you've had before. Um, We're seeing some great success working with hospitality workers. That's a segment that's been hit extremely hard with all the job losses but they have tremendous customer service skills. And so those can certainly be applied to other areas of customer support or call centers. Banking is also very hot right now with all the loans that are being processed with the government programs. And so you absolutely can pivot to a new industry and your skills are transferable. All right, that's always good to remember. And then for people who are worried that companies just aren't hiring right now, and a lot of them are not, we know um, Randstad and Monster.com noticed an influx in job postings as well as clients seeking jobs as well. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, we're definitely, like I said, seeing that increased demand um, across the food supply chain, across customer support and call center um, opportunities and roles. Um, also in, in finance and banking. And lastly, in IT, the IT segment has been extremely resilient uh, throughout the crisis. Companies are continuing to invest in their digital transformation. And these are roles that are easily done um, in a work from home environment, which has also been helpful during the lockdown. So bottom line, if you're discouraged, what's some final tips for people <laughs> yeah. out there who just feel hopeless right now? Yeah, well, listen, stay positive, number one. Um, There are jobs available out there, and there are lots of resources to help you, all the way from free training to resume assessments and um, obviously working with staffing firms like Ronstadt, where we can help you find your next position. All right, Karen Fishhook, we appreciate it so much. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. 
The NBA suspended all action on March 11th after one of their players tested positive for COVID-19. And now NBA players are itching to get back on that court and finish the 2020 season. The UFC and NASCAR have both found ways to start up. So when will the NBA be able to as well? Our next guest, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, is here to tell us more about this. A lot of sports fans want to know. And Mark, how can players, do you believe return to the game safely so that we all can, you know, get our game back, cheer on our favorite sports teams. Right. I mean, first and foremost, the guys are dying to play. I mean, there's no question about that. But we're going to have to have a testing protocol in place. And the good news is we saw NASCAR kind of open the door, the UFC and even WWE start to set some precedents. And so we'll learn from what they've done. But the key is accurate testing and being able to keep our guys safe. Nothing can happen until then. Yeah, certainly that makes a lot of sense. But how important is it, do you think, to get this season up and running again? And do you have any idea about when that might happen? You know, I can't give you a date, but it's obviously very important. We all want to root for our teams. I mean, having NASCAR and golf back. But, you know, Americans love team sports, and NBA fans want to root for the Mavs and whoever their favorite team is. We need something to get excited about and to cheer for. So it's critically important. I can't give you a date, but I can tell you that the NBA and all the teams are working hard to make that. All right, that'll make a lot of fans happy. You're you're headed in the right direction. And you made some uh, headlines yesterday when you tweeted that every household you believe should get a $1,000 check every two weeks, but they have to use it in 10 days or lose it. Tell us why you put out this tweet. Well, what's happening right now is, you know, we've had programs, the PPP and others, that allow businesses to keep on paying their employees. But because of all the uncertainty of whether or not people are going to continue to lose their jobs, 36 million have lost their jobs, people are saving more and spending less. We need to inspire people to spend more. We need to create consumer um, demand. 67% of our GDP is from consumer demand. And really, until we can give them confidence that they're going to have their jobs, they won't. So the $1,000 every two weeks basically says, we're going to give you $1,000 and you have to spend it. If you don't use it, you lose it. The goal there is to stimulate demand because businesses can't stay open if their customers aren't buying. Did you hear back from anyone in the U.S. government? Not yet, but it's a conversation we'll have. And look, I'll give them credit. I'm on the, um, the president's council for getting things back open, and they've been very responsive. So we'll see what they say. I'm sure you heard a lot from uh, people who'd be the recipient of that money. So, you know, uh, what, what was the response like on Twitter? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people like the idea that they'll have money to spend. A lot of people are confused about how it might work. And actually, there's a little bit of a precedent, not so much with the use it or lose it side, but um, there's a Social Security program called Direct Express that gives a debit card that's just updated with funds um, as it's earned. And that's a way that it can be implemented. So, you know, again, we're not going to have an economy if there's no consumer demand. And that's the biggest stress point right now. When people are not confident that they're going to be able to keep their jobs, they, they say they hoard money as best they can. We're seeing the savings rate go up to 14 percent. That's that's not a good thing for the overall economy. And so just coming up with ways to, that we can push demand, that really is where we're at right now in keeping small and medium and even large businesses open and moving forward. And that's what it's going to take to bring the economy back. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of creativity. So uh, we appreciate the idea, Mark. Also, before we let you go, May is Food Allergy Awareness Month. And I know you have a daughter 
who has life-threatening food allergies, and you are an investor in Ready, Set, Food, which you covered on and discovered on Shark Tank. It's a system that introduces babies to peanut, egg, and milk with the goal of reducing their risk of developing those allergies. It's one of the companies that offer that type of treatment. So tell us what your experience has been like as a parent with a child of extreme food allergies. You know, it's scary. Every time you walk into a restaurant, you have to be very clear that she can't have cashews or pistachios or is there any trace of it inside any of the foods. And it's a concern. And so with Ready, Set, Food, this is a way for newborns and, and toddlers, I guess, to really be able to to prepare their, their, their bodies to not be allergic to nuts. And our, in the case of Ready, Set, Food, nuts, eggs or milk. It's a great product. There's science behind it. There's a group of doctors that have really worked hard. Now, the other thing I want to mention, if you go to readysetfood.com slash giving back, for anybody who's just had a baby who has lost their job due to COVID, we've got a really unique program where we'll provide you Ready, Set, Food, which is just one packet that you take daily for 15 days, and then there's a maintenance program after that. But we'll support you. We know these are desperate times, and we really want to help people who have just had babies because allergies, it's concerning to me as a parent, it's concerning to every parent. They're happening more now, and Ready, Set, Food is a great way to address it. Well, that's fantastic. Giving back. Mark Cuban, we certainly appreciate you giving us your time today. Stay well. Thank you. I'm going to stand by you. First responders across the country are graduating early to join in the front lines. The fire and rescue team of Fairfax, Virginia, is the latest county to accelerate their training program in order to have graduates dive right in and help the overwhelmed staff. And joining us now is one of the newest firefighter graduates, Amina Abdullahi. Amina, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations. But I know your graduation was anything but typical. You graduated just a little over a month early. Tell us how it went. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so our academy was cut six weeks short um, in order to supplement the field and help with staffing out here. So it was definitely interesting, unprecedented times for everybody. But I think everyone in my class was very excited to come out to the field um, and begin our training for our probationary year um, and begin running calls to help the citizens that, you know, that's why we came here to serve them. So we're all very excited. Yeah, we and we are also very grateful, by the way, we should say. So six weeks early, how did they prepare you not only just for an early start as a firefighter, but to be a first responder during a pandemic? Well, in the academy, you know, our officers and all of our instructors really stress that, you know, they train us to this level um, where they make everything difficult, mentally, physically challenging, so that hopefully by the time that we came out to the field, and did these things um, in real life that we would, it would be muscle memory, it would maybe be very doable because we were used to um, a bit of a higher level of stress. Mm. And I I think they definitely prepared us well because of that. Um, And now coming out here during these times, we are able to continue to train with our crews now and just, you know, by running those calls and gaining that experience continue to kind of broaden what we're able to do. Well, Amina, again, congratulations. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your service. Thank you. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts on this Monday. Amy, as we hear more and more headlines seemingly every day, sometimes by the hour, I really wanted to do a deep dive on how we can help people at home think about those headlines almost in a scientific or medical manner, how I think about them myself. And it's really the who, what, where, when, why, and how. These are the questions that I think are important any time we hear a headline or see a headline is, 
who is the source? Where was the research done or where did the headline come from? How was it done? Why is it done? Um, and then I think we really have to evaluate the pros and cons. Um, that's really the only way to follow this story in a rational manner, because otherwise it is so easy to just become confused and turn a deaf ear to it. And there is some important information that we do need to understand. Um, when we put this into perspective, it's unbelievable to remember that this is just barely six months old. And some scientists, some virologists spend 50 years studying a virus, and they still don't learn anywhere near what there is to know about it. So we're in the infancy. This is the beginning. Um, and there's still a lot we don't know. And right. I think that when we, when we hear a headline, it helps to have kind of a structure to help us interpret it. Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you, you as bet. always. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.